One day in my Bible study group, when we were studying the books of Samuel, a woman told us she had a confession to make. She said, I have like a major crush on David. I had never considered it, I guess. Oh, just think about him, she said. Maybe she has a point. When we meet David for the first time, the text says that he is ready handsome, with beautiful eyes. He's young and tanned and lean from shepherding every day in the heat, a devil-may-care adventurer with a soft side, a guy who could face down a lion, and then later, you know, strum out a song he wrote for the occasion, sweeping his rock star hair out of his gorgeous Rob Lowe eyes as throngs of adoring women look on. And I do mean throngs. When David would return from battle, hordes of women would spontaneously grab their tambourines and parade him through the streets, gyrating, grinding, twerking, singing. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. It wasn't just women swept away by David either. A few weeks ago, we heard the story of David slaying Goliath, a slingshot, right to the head. For good measure, David grabs the dead Philistine's hair and beheads him, a detail they tend to leave out in Sunday school, funnily enough. And he carries this gruesome thing into the palace where King Saul is swept away. Names David the commander of his armies right then and there. Jonathan, Saul's son and heir to the throne, is there too. And the moment he sees David walk up in his blood-splattered glory with the decapitated head of a giant clenched in his manly fists, the Bible says Jonathan's heart, his soul, went out to him. At that very moment, Jonathan is overcome. He gives up Everything to David, the text says. His bow, his armor, his belt, his sword, even his claim to inherit the throne, his birthright, suddenly nothing compared to his love for David. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a crush on David. Everyone, it seems, except the writer of these stories. One of the things I love most about the Bible is that it has this remarkable capacity for self-critique. Even the story of Israel's greatest ever king is framed by its own criticism in the text itself. All right, you remember the story of Israel asking the prophet Samuel for a king. It was on my first Sunday here, actually. They want to be like other nations. They cry out for a king. God says to Samuel, a king? You don't want a king. You've got me. You want a charismatic figurehead? An alpha male, someone, to shallow, someone shallow enough to attract a mass following, you want to give a person all this power? He'll make you do his will. Look, a king will send you out to fight his battles. A king will take your daughters and sons. 
the best of what you have. You turn to a king and you turn away from me. Ever since that Sunday, we've heard the heroic tales of David and friends, the best stories from Sunday school about a guy whom the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. We've tuned out Samuel's warning as we've rushed after the crowd, screaming and holding our hands out to the celebrity, following fan pages, swearing allegiance, drawing the party lines, not noticing at all the tiny fractures that have begun to spread over the glass of the whole picture frame. The story today begins... In the spring of the year, when the, t- the time when kings go out to battle. What is David doing while the other kings fight? He stays at home in Jerusalem. Samuel's voice echoes in your head, doesn't it? You know what a king does. He takes your children to fight his battles. We don't know what David is is doing in all this spare time that he's got exactly, but the story says that David finally gets out of bed in the late afternoon. So we have some guesses. He yawns, stretches, pops some aspirin for the hangover, and looks outside. He sees a woman bathing on her roof. David wants her David sends for her, and David has sex with her. The way I heard this story growing up, it was told with this almost like, ah, shucks kind of feel. Glorious and noble David with this tragic flaw. Pastors would preach on it as a warning about succumbing to temptation, or worse, Uh, that Bathsheba was some kind of exhibitionist temptress, though she is absolutely voiceless and powerless in the story. And I never really stopped to question where people would have bathed before the days of indoor plumbing. You can see us making excuses for power even in the way we've told this story over time. After a couple thousand years of biblical commentary, it's only been in my lifetime where people have stopped and said, you know, a powerless subject of the king is summoned to his palace and pregnancy results. We have a name for when the powerful use the powerless for sex, and it is not adultery. It is not called an affair. This is not a story about David's uncontrollable libido. It is a story about power and what it does to the noblest and then to the weakest of us. All you have to do is to keep reading to see it. David has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, return from battle in hopes to cover up his misdeeds. Uriah is too honorable to sleep with his wife while his men are in danger in the midst of battle. 
David tries again the next night, getting Uriah drunk in hopes that it'll loosen his tight grip on morality, but that doesn't work either. Fine, he shrugs to himself. I'll send him to the front lines and then have everyone retreat around him. He gives the command, and Uriah is killed, along with a bunch of other troops. David doesn't feel a thing. These lives are just collateral damage. All of this he does to sate his own desires to keep his power intact. This is what kings do. You know, we don't even need to look hard for modern-day equivalents as the middle class increasingly disappears and the gulf widens between the ever-fewer rich and the growing masses of the hopeless poor. We don't have to look far to know who we are willing to sacrifice for our own ease and security. After a year and a half of Amazon workers putting their lives on the line for menial labor during a global pandemic, Jeff Bezos and other uber-rich men expended godly fortunes this week to rocket themselves into nothingness. I mean, I'm a preacher. Heavy-handed metaphors are kind of my jam. But that's a lot even for me. You can read the Bible as one long argument with itself as to the nature of power. Humankind's desirous grasping and assertion of it, the catastrophic results, and there's this haunting refrain riddled throughout of what God's power is actually like. It turns out we all have a crush on power. And the Bible has this lingering question of whether the very human stories of David and you and me can actually be redeemed. Jesus is called the son of David 14 times in the New Testament, according to www.learnthebible.org. The title doesn't fit at all if you're looking for another David. No grisly beheadings, no wealth, no political control or clout. Apparently, he wasn't even very good looking. Jesus does very unking-like things. He empties himself of power. He brings in children and immigrants and prostitutes and swindlers and says, look, it's the kingdom. We know our power directly relates to the subservience of others. And he says, no, close as you can get to God's kingdom is only in how you serve others. The only way in is to do what I have done and let go. And when we found that our fists couldn't unclench, our hearts enthralled with power, when we found ourselves as surely outside of this kingdom of no kings as you can get, 
Jesus opens the door to you and me and says, mercy is it. Mercy is the only way to redeem your story now.